Hey there, We Can't Wrestle Podcast listeners. If you haven't noticed, we have switched our server to Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So go ahead, download the free Anchor app, or go to anchor.fm to get started. Highly recommended by me and everybody else here at the We Can't Wrestle podcast. The We Can't Wrestle podcast. The King listens to it. WWE Hall of Famer Jerry the King Lawler, and you better listen to it too. My friend Nate and the We Can't Wrestle podcast. Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode 131 of the We Can't Wrestle podcast. Nate Maxson, your host, here with you. And I have a very special guest on the show today. We will get to that in just a moment, but I would be remiss if I did not let you know, if you do not know already... WrestleNet Radio has launched. Yes, it has. I am very proud of this project. Uh, There are millions of professional wrestling podcasts out there. And we are happy when you choose us as your podcast of choice. We, you know, really enjoy our listeners and our listenership. And, but there aren't any 24-hour, 7-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year pro wrestling online radio stations out there, are there? Well, there is now. WrestleNet Radio is, as we speak, on the air, and all you have to do is go, if you, are a, if you have an Android phone, go to the Google Play Store and search WrestleNet Radio, all one word. The app is there. You can download an app for your phone and have it on the go 24-7. Now, we are still working with Apple on getting the freaking app on the App Store. Apple's always very difficult about things. Until then, though... For those of you that are Apple users, you can go to the WrestleNet Radio Facebook page, which I have created, or inside the We Can't Wrestle podcast Facebook group, I have placed a link that you can go to that will open the station in your Safari web browser. So until we can get that app up and running on Apple, that will be your option for the Apple um, users. I apologize for that, but like I said, Apple's always a pain in the ass as far as anything goes. So we will figure that out as we go along. That being said, now I want to get to the main event of the show. Uh, This week I got to sit down with Barry Rose, who is a preeminent wrestling historian, especially on the Florida Territory, championship wrestling from Florida, and uh, I wanted to sit down and pick his brain about CWF, and it was a fantastic conversation, and I want to thank Barry very much for being on the show. Uh, We got to talk about... Championship Wrestling for Florida. We got to talk about the possible return of the CWF Legends Fan Fest, which is very exciting. I'm glad things are getting up and running again now post-COVID. So there is some information in the interview about that. And of course, you can always listen to Barry 
on the podcast that he and Jeff Bowdrin host, which is Breaking Kayfabe, Frabe? <laughs> Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. And I have posted links to that podcast in the group before. So that being said, let's do this. Let's just head into our conversation with Barry Rose on the We Can't Wrestle podcast. All right, wrestling fans, I'd like to take this time to welcome to the show a guest that I am very happy to have with us this week. The one, the only, the co-host of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowden and Barry. You hear me talk about the show on our show, and I have plugged it on our Facebook group as well, because it is, I'm not being full of shit when I say this. It's actually my personal favorite podcast. One of the co-hosts of the show, Mr. Barry Rose, is here with me this week. Welcome to the show, Barry. I appreciate it, Nate. And the check is in the mail for saying that, by the way. So, Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, and and the, the cheeseburgers are in the mail for your appearance today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I, I would love that. Nothing would my, make me happier than a big fatty cheeseburger. Right my, now, so. my One of my other co-hosts, Archie Mitchell, is going to be angry with me because in his contract, it states cheeseburgers. I am eluding his cheeseburgers from this week's pay and sending them to Mr. Rose. <laughs> Barry, it is, again, it's great to have you here. Great. Thank you for taking the time out to join me this week. Um, Barry is not only the co-host of Breaking Kayfabe, but also the man behind the CWF Fan Fest. And uh, that is that is something that I want to aim to get to sometime after COVID and all this is over with and we can get back to normal. Um, but you want to tell everybody a little bit of your history as a wrestling fan, especially in Florida, because I do want to talk about Florida during the show. Um, I'll put this in perspective. I was born in 1978. So I became a wrestling fan around the age of five, 1983. Oh, guess what? The the beginning of Hulkamania in the United States. So as a little dude, uh, my exposure, my first exposure to pro wrestling was obviously the WWF's national expansion, um, the WCW or NWA on TBS. Aaron and I grew up in Ohio. So once in a while, we would get to watch the stuff from Detroit from the Sheik's Dying promotion at the time. Um, and then as we grew up, of course, we're wrestling fans, 80s and 90s. So that tends to be, obviously, what we gravitate to here on the show. But as I got older, you know, you start to expand. You start to think about, oh, oh wow, I want to check this stuff out from Mid-South. I, I didn't even know Junkyard Dog wrestled here, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the promotions that I haven't seen a lot of, and it kind of fascinates me, is Florida. So I'm very, very happy to have you here um, as someone who got to not only live through the territories, but live in a territory like that. Like for me as a guy that never got to experience that, that's fascinating. Yeah. You know, I, I was really, it's, it, it, obviously it takes time to understand how fortunate you are, but uh, the other aspect, you know, which I'll, I'll tie in is I grew up on a condominium directly on the beach mm-hmm. and I, I never understood how lucky I was and how fortunate I was until I was gone until I was, I was living in New York city and I would try to describe it to people. They would talk about their childhood and what they did. And I'd be like, you know, I I grew up literally on a beach in a condominium that overlooked the ocean. And then two to three times per week, I would also go to professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, you know, when it was happening because it's, it's your daily routine there's nothing unusual. You don't realize how fortunate you are. And then I'm in New York City and I'm hearing about people playing stickball between vacant, you know, crack houses 
And it, and then I'm going, shit, I really was lucky. Like I really was. <laughs> now I can look back and obviously I realize, wow, I was really fortunate on so many levels. But, you know, Florida was such a vibrant territory, such a compelling, exciting territory for professional wrestling going back to the 50s, really through the 80s uh, until the promotion died in, in 87. Uh, and there was really a lot of reasons for it. First off, geographically located, you're in Florida. I mean, right. the weather is great. Uh, you know, you can go to the beach or go swimming in the day in the pool and you can go swimming in January. You know, there, right. there are times when it can be cold, but it, at the same time, you could spend plenty of time, you know, doing all these things that you couldn't do in the northeastern states. Uh, the other aspect was the territory wasn't the hardest territory to navigate. There were certain cities where you had to drive because mm -hmm. Florida is a very, you know, it's a very long state. Uh, and then the third aspect was were the women. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. every territory had uh, women that were, you know, they were called ring rats, which I'm right. sure you've heard the term before. Uh, but Florida had, you know, arguably some of the hottest women and still does uh, <laughs> in the entire country. So this was very attractive uh, for guys going down to work in Florida. But it was a vibrant territory. You know, you would you would have six nights a week of wrestling. And then in about 77, they flipped on. And then Sunday, they started wrestling on Sundays. Uh, but a lot of times you would get two cards per night. Wow. So, you know, one single territory in one state might be putting on 12 shows, 12 cards per week. Mm -hmm. uh, and television, there's another one right there. So we certainly had a lot of options. Where I grew up, and I grew up in an area called North Miami Beach, which literally was just north of what everybody knows as Miami Beach. And uh, I could be at wrestling in Miami Beach in about 20 or 25 minutes. If I was fortunate enough and my dad or my friends wanted to go to West Palm, that was only an hour away. And then, pardon me, Friday nights were in Fort Lauderdale. That was about 30 minutes away. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of weeks where I was actually going to three cards per week, but the longest drive was only one hour. See, and that's what I'm saying where I'm, I, I'm jealous of guys that got to be during in a territory during the territory times, because to, just to put it in perspective, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. My so, on that, by the way. <laughs> so we, you got to go, okay, the WWF will be in Toledo or Detroit or maybe Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, once, twice a year. Uh, maybe, maybe WCW will come through. They did not run Ohio very often, you know, maybe during the Nitro time they did, but um, in the early 90s, late 80s. So, yeah, I mean, there's just wasn't that. that and, and it is my experience, and I obviously that's why I gravitate toward wrestlers like Bret Hart or Randy Savage or someone like that, because that's what was in my formidable years, what I got to watch and who I got to see. And that's the thing that, that, and I always get in the weeds, I'm sorry, but that's a thing about wrestling to me that is, it's such a generational thing. You know, it's, 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 so you're, you would say the best matches I ever saw had say Jack Briscoe in them, you know, or, and, and then I'm going to say, Oh, the best matches I ever saw had Bret Hart in them. My son, God bless him. He's going to say the best matches I ever saw had Kenny Omega in them, you know, and but and, and I'm going to sit there and go, Kenny Omega, what are you talking about? But you have to think about it just like music. It's like I always tell my wife, they don't make new music for old people. 
you know, music, music's the same way. It's, it's that evolution of the art. And, but I find myself jealous of territory guys, because once I go back and now and later in life and have watched it all, it's like, man, I wish I would have been there for that. Well, the wrestling was great too, but you got to realize too, the world was in a different place. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there, you hear the old uh, cliche and it's, it's a really brutal cliche about smoky arenas and shit like that, but it was legit. You know, you would show up and I can tell you, one of the highlights for me on Wednesday nights and going to the matches in Miami was seeing the same people sitting ringside week after week. So I spent mm-hmm. 10 years seeing the same faces every Wednesday night. I knew which vendor to go to uh, to get the best slice of pizza. You know what I mean? Right. There were all these little details and it, the wrestling was great. You know, it, the wrestling obviously was the attraction and what brought us to the building. At the same time, there's all these little intangibles that go along with it. You mm-hmm. know, my dad and I would go out to eat prior. We would go to the newsstand and get the latest wrestling magazines. We knew where the, the wrestlers were, were entering into the building if I wanted to get autographs. So there were all these little things to it. So when I thought about going to wrestling on a Wednesday night, it wasn't always that I'm going to see, let's say, a Jack Briscoe match or Dusty Rhodes or whoever, it was like, you know, I'm going to get a large popcorn tonight. I'm going to get ice cream. I'll see some good wrestling. Dusty's going to bleed, and I know that. (laughs) But there were so many things. And the generational aspect, you're 100% correct. The wrestling you grew up with, in most cases, is always going to be your favorite. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, and even now – I look back and, and I can, you know, we've, I've been doing the podcast with my, my co-host, Jeff Baldrin, for uh, over three and a half years. Never missed a fucking episode, by the way. Just clearly want to point out that we are 185 episodes that have delivered every Tuesday morning without missing one. I have never done anything like that in my life. <laughs> we're, we're so constant at 180 episodes, 185 episodes, whatever the number is. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's it's insane, actually, when I stop and think about it. But, uh, you know, it, it, wrestling is generational. And part of our our listener group, they're younger than we are. You know, mm-hmm. you're younger than I am, Nate. But we don't really look too much different, i got to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> except for you're a little darker in the uh, in the beard aspect. Oh, Ohio takes its toll. I didn't, didn't have that Florida sun my whole life. Sorry. Uh, this is Philadelphia, son, you're looking at oh, right well, now. So. Yeah, there goes my excuse. Yeah, but my DNA, as, I, as my dermatologist always tells me, your DNA has been mutated. <laughs> my parents, you know, at my age, when my parents took me out in the sun, uh, that whole skin cancer, there was none of that. Like, mm-hmm. it was just like, yeah, bring the kid out, he gets a sunburn, whatever. Uh, but I'm very fortunate that I have no issues. But uh, the point I was trying to make before I got off topic, which I frequently do, is uh, people in our Facebook group are demographically much younger than, than Jeff and myself. Mm-hmm. And they'll look back fondly on the WWE that they grew up with. Some are roughly your age, some are a little bit younger, but they look back through these rose-colored glasses. It's because what they saw. Mm-hmm. A lot of those matches were horrific, and I mean terrible. Guys like Bret Hart, Randy Savage, Shawn Michaels were the balance right. uh, to what could be a really horrific fucking card. But then you would throw in one or two good matches, in some cases a great match. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these same people that that criticize current wrestling, and AEW is a, is a huge target, if you're going to tell me that 
the WWWF from 30 or 35 years ago is better than the current AEW product, you clearly need to pull your, your head out of your rectum. <laughs> and and I say that with the utmost respect, but mm-hmm. that's that's the what I was really what yeah. I was alluding to. You look at what you grew up with with rose colored glasses. You mm-hmm. can do nothing wrong. You know, even the fucking Doink versus Crush match was the greatest match ever because you have a great memory of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's definitely true. Like I I look back now, and I, I <laughs> there's another thing I'm glad of. I'm glad I was young and dumb in the '80s like a little kid, because you're right. I mean, watching, watching a bloated Dino Bravo um, lumber around the ring with a, with an uninspired Greg Valentine is, is not, is not good stuff. The stuff that honestly, the stuff that I look the most fondly on is the stuff probably five years prior to and up to the attitude era. Um, I I really loved, especially the, my my favorite thing in wrestling, and we're getting off topic, but <laughs> my favorite year in wrestling is the WWF in nineteen ninety seven for me with okay. the Brett with the Bret Hart heel run and um, Steve Austin on the rise and all of that. It was just to me that is a year that I can go back and just watch from beginning to end in that promotion because I was never a WCW guy. I guess I was a WWF guy back then and during the Monday Night Wars. Um, WCW was fine, but that, that like you said, it's it's what you grew up with, it's what you watched, and that's what shapes your fandom. And then hopefully, as you get older, you can expand your fandom. You know, and and like I said, that's what I've gone back and done. I wish there was more Florida for me to watch. To be honest well, with you, and there is there's Florida out there, certainly in our Facebook group. And I will give the the very cheap plug right now. It is the Championship Wrestling from Florida Archives Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've got 8,400 members. Uh, we've been in existence for over seven years. I think it's all coming up on our eighth year. Prior to that, I actually had a, a website, mm-hmm. which was the CWF Archives website. Uh, I discontinued it with the, you know, in Facebook, you can do something very similar and it's interactive. So it's a lot more fun in that right. regard. Uh, but we, we post a lot of videos. There's somebody that posts a video per day. Uh, but if you do search YouTube, there is in the last two years, a lot more is, has become available. And mm-hmm. one of the things when you look at the old Florida wrestling, too, was the realism uh, of the product that was being put out. You can watch guys like Buddy Cole and Paul Jones, uh, you know, in the middle of the ring. And you would swear on a stack of Bibles that these guys are, are they legitimately hate each other and going to kill each other. Right. This wasn't acting. These punches you know, you would say to yourself, this is a worked punch. Paul Jones, you know, his punches, the guy was a, an amateur boxer, but he knew how to throw a punch. Uh, you would just, you know, you would go, there's just no way that this isn't legit. This is believable. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say he had a better punch than Lawler? No, I wouldn't. But you know what? That's a very good comparison. It's mm-hmm. a very similar type of punch. Okay. Uh, I've always felt Lawler had one of the best. Paul Jones, Bob Cook. Uh, and uh, Bob Cook is another one that doesn't get the credit, uh, but Bob Cook's punches were through the roof. Uh, but, you know, you look at some of the really horrific punches that have been out there through the years. <laughs> so when you see a good a good punch, you're definitely going to appreciate mm-hmm. it. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize about Florida is how, uh, what do I want to say, you, you, you're, you have a progression here that runs into 
into at least the early 80s NWA WCW because Cowboy Luttrell to Eddie Graham to Dusty Rhodes. And then Dusty's influence comes into into the, the national promotions with the NWA. And that's the other that's the other thing I was going to ask you. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and I'm sure this is one of those questions you're going to say, Nate, this is one of the questions people always ask me. But I want to ask anyway, just because this goes back again to my fandom. I was, I, I loved Dusty Rhodes, even as a little kid. Who couldn't? Who couldn't? The, 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 the charisma was insane. Um, the, but what I saw of Dusty Rhodes was Dusty Rhodes from probably, what did I say, 83. So I probably discovered the NWA in 85 or 86 at seven or eight years old until, you know, until his passing. So there's my Dusty Rhodes until I started going back into the territories. So my question, because I'm fascinated because I'm a fan of his, how cool was that <laughs> to, to, to be there when Dusty was at his possibly his peak? You know, I mean, yeah, granted, nationally, Dusty Rhodes, the NWA champion, 86, 87, what have you. But during that time in Florida, was would you say arguably his best stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, his best stuff would have occurred. So Dusty turned babyface in May of 1970, uh, May of 1974. Mm-hmm. And. Prior to the Dusty turn, uh, it had been a build where Dusty was this really popular heel. And he was popular because even though Dusty was a big guy, he moved with lightning speed. That that certainly went away uh, by the time you were watching him. But mm-hmm. he was vibrant. He was exciting. He was charismatic. He was great in the ring. There was so much that Dusty could do. And what I think happened within two to three years of that baby face turn, because I was there, I, you know, I was there from when Dusty was a heel uh, up until essentially Dusty left the state and went to Crockett. And Dusty was uh, initially, Dusty was, even I was very excited, especially, mm-hmm. in, you know, in the in 75, 74, 75, 76, because you knew that it, it, Dusty was never boring. At the end of the day, this was you were going to get you, even though I wasn't paying for my tickets, you were going to get your money's worth. Right. And everybody understood that the issue. And this is my perspective on it. And I bet you could find a million people that would disagree with me in a heartbeat. And probably even in my own Facebook group, you would find a lot of people who disagree with me. But as somebody who was there, the formula for Dusty got old mm-hmm. and uh at some point I started, you know, it, it, I just, even as a 12 and 13 year old, I could telegraph what was going to happen that night, what well, the main event was going to be with Dusty. And, and that's not something, you know, that I, I think, I think that's bad when that happens to business. I think when you can start to say, yeah, we're going to see this. And, you know, it's a, it was much more exciting to me to see maybe a Jack Briscoe match to reference what you said earlier, only because I didn't always know what the outcome was going to be. Right. With Dusty, you knew Dusty wasn't doing a clean pinfall. Dusty hadn't done clean pinfalls in years. Dusty did not do clean pinfalls. Mm-hmm. So if Dusty lost, it was going to be by disqualification. There was also a 95% chance, maybe even greater, that Dusty was going to, going to bleed. And I think when wrestling becomes too predictable, part of the fun is taken out. So 
to answer your question in a very long-winded roundabout way, yes, there were points when it was exciting and Dusty, make no mistake, Dusty was the guy that people wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Dusty was the guy that sold tickets and put asses in seats. For me, it didn't always work that way. Well, and and you're, you, uh, here we go with the generation thing again. Um, that was, I think, the what you're describing that I did not get to see with Dusty was honestly the same thing that happened to the Hulk Hogan formula sure. in the WWF in the you know in the 80s going into the early 90s. Okay, it worked like gangbusters for about three years, Vince. <laughs> but now we're beating a dead horse here. Okay, Hogan's going to have the you know the monster heel, and then Hogan's going to fight the monster, and that was bred into Vince by his dad. You know the way they booked the territory in 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 New York and and that, but yeah, that's that's a great that's triggers something in my head there. A great comparison between you know this guy can be all charisma, but if you book it into oblivion, <laughs> that was he was he booking himself then? Was he the booker he in Florida? In the beginning, in the beginning, he wasn't. You know, guys like Bill Watts, but Dusty essentially was. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could say booking himself but certainly was coming up with a lot of his own finishes. And, uh, you know, the idea, and I get it, the idea was to always protect Dusty because he was your drawing card. He was right. the guy. You know, you got to realize, too, if you look at, let's say, the top five baby faces in the U.S. from the period 1975 to 1980, uh, you know, Andre the Giant, mm -hmm. maybe Bruno San Martino, mm -hmm. Dusty Rhodes, guys like this, Dusty was essentially the cornerstone of the state. You know, the, mm -hmm. the promotion, for the most part, was drawing 4,000 people per night to the buildings, except for Jacksonville, which would draw maybe 8,000, give or take. And then they did a monthly card in St. Petersburg that might do somewhere in the same neighborhood. But on a weekly basis, Miami, Tampa, they're doing roughly 4,000, give mm -hmm. or take. So for Dusty to commit to being in the state when he could be, guy could be headlining Madison Square Garden. He was headlining Houston, Atlanta. It was all over mm -hmm. the country. Oh, when they brought him, when they brought him into the WWF to do the run with uh, Billy Graham. Absolutely, yeah. but and they had amazing, they had amazing chemistry together. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, for Dusty to commit to staying in the state, and he would leave but come back, and you know, if, if he got injured, you know, Kevin Sullivan spikes him, whatever it is, right? Dusty leaves and he comes back in two weeks. But we also saw a period where, uh, you know, if Dusty was gone for any length of time, and I can give you a couple, I'll give you three examples actually. One was 1979 Sweet Brown Sugar. Uh, mm. 19 in Sweet Brown Sugar was Skip Young. Skip, yeah. 1980 was Paul Jones as Mr. Florida. And then 1982 was uh, Butch, Butch Reed, Hacksaw. Mm -hmm. All three drew extremely well. And I think in my head, I think part of it had to do with it was a new baby face to get behind because we had seen the Dusty Rhodes formula. Again, take me out of it. But I, I think for the average fan, if you had gone to every show in Miami for a year, you know, there's 50 to 51 shows. They usually take off one week out of the year. Dusty's probably on 40 of those shows. You're seeing that similar formula 40 times a year <laughs> in the same city. So when a guy like 
Butch Reed is a great example. Butch Reed came in. Butch Reed was on fire. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, I didn't just like Butch Reed. Butch Reed was drawing. And Butch Reed was putting asses in seats. In Miami, a town that had done 3,500 to 4,500 on a weekly basis was now doing over 5,000, wow. some, sometimes upwards of 6,000. He was out drawing Dusty. Now, there could be a lot of reasons, maybe the economy, gas shortages. There's all right. these a lot of reasons. At the same time, Dusty came back after his sabbatical of being gone for a few months, and uh, Butch Reed's push was then downgraded. Uh, and we interviewed Butch and we asked him about that. And to his credit, Dusty dead. You know, Butch, unfortunately, has passed on since. Right. But mm -hmm. uh, Butch still didn't want to say anything negative about Dusty. That being said, a guy like Paul Jones had no problem saying something <laughs> negative about Dusty and uh, went on a four-letter uh, four word tirade uh, and calling Dusty all kinds of names, saying, I was, I was the number one baby face. I was drawing. People were vested in my programs with Sir Oliver Humperdinck and the Super Destroyer. Dusty came back and, you know, he's this motherfucker, Dusty, and he's calling him all these right. names and basically saying that was it. Dusty comes back and, you know, two weeks later, I'm out of the state. I'm gone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, Butch, and Skip Young, I never had the chance. But by the same token, Skip Young did extremely well. You know, mm -hmm. fans were Skip Young with the mask on was a totally different guy. And uh, fans were so into what he was doing. He became the top baby face in the state. The, you mentioned a name that I actually have down here to ask you about because um, a lot of our listeners are, you just talked about your podcast listeners being maybe a little younger than you. A lot of ours are either the same age or a little younger than us. So they're not going to, a lot of people are not going to know. Again, you talk about generationally. Guess where? Guess what I saw as a younger person of Oliver Humperdinck. I saw sure. him in the WWF with Bam Bam Bigelow. Um, I saw WCW dress him up as what was a biker, Big Daddy Dink, or whatever it was. All that. Can you can you impart to our listeners how good Oliver Humperdinck was as a manager in Florida during the territory? Absolutely. Then I'm, after that, I'm going to circle back to talk about a wrestler that I just mentioned that was, I think, one of the best ever. But most people only know him from a horrible, horrible managerial stint in Crockett. Sir Oliver Humperdinck, if you were in the state of Florida, and I would imagine people in Los Angeles or Montreal also mm -hmm. got a really good taste. He was arguably the best manager I ever saw. Now, a lot of people will give that credit and they'll say, well, Bobby Heenan was the best or Jim Cornette. And the name Humperdinck never really comes up. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, that horrible run uh, where he was the manager of uh, Bam Bam Bigelow mm -hmm. or his later stint where was he even a manager for the, right. you know, he was, yeah. <laughs> it was more just part of what the Freebirds were what, doing or whatever, yeah, whatever act. Yeah. They, they had him with the, they had him with the SST for a minute and right. doing that. And yeah, but yeah, like you said, he was never really a manager. He was just part of a larger act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, baby face managers almost never get over. It's a it's to me, it's the kiss of death. Humperdinck was great because Humperdinck in the state of Florida, too. You know, Humperdinck was a guy much like Jimmy Hart was in Memphis. It's almost mm -hmm. a similar pattern that it, you're not going to always remember who he managed, but you're going to remember he was there. 
And if a big heel was coming into Florida, Humperdinck was the guy. Humperdinck would leave and come back. But for the most part, Humperdinck spent 13 years in the state of Florida. Yes, he would leave. He spent time in Crockett. Dory Funk Jr. was a big fan mm -hmm. uh, of Humperdinck's work. But Humperdinck was great because, A, wasn't afraid to get involved in a match, but then take a beating. Uh, right. He was loved the blade. He would bleed. But his interview style was fantastic. So he had this flaming red hair, which was natural, white skin, and he would work himself up into a lather and his eyes would bulge like he had like, you know, like a thyroid condition, mm -hmm. like his eyes are bulging out of his head, <laughs> but his skin would turn beet red, just like his hair. Mm -hmm. And he would get himself and, you know, he would lose his voice. He was just so believable and so great. And there are periods where he's the top heel in the state. I mean, you know, above whoever he's managing, mm -hmm. more people wanted to kill Humperdinck. And that's really a testament to doing a great yeah. job. Uh, they did turn him babyface in 1980, and it worked. It was because it was a short-term deal. They didn't alter his personality. They didn't bring him in as a babyface manager right. with a cane or a sequin fucking jacket. But he was the same guy now just going after heels mm -hmm. and it worked. But the genius of also understanding that was it's short term. This is not something we're going to do. And then he turned back heel after just a few months. Okay. But he was absolutely fantastic. I would rate him as in the top three managers that I ever saw of all time. There no doubt were guys before me, uh, before my time, gentlemen saw Weingaroff. I've heard was fantastic. J.C. Dykes, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a bunch of guys that I never had the chance to what see. What was the What was I, the guy in uh, What was the guy in Memphis? Sam Bass is a voice. I, I saw that. Sam Bass. So Did Sam you? Bass okay. See, I've never, I've never seen, I've never seen Sam Bass. Oh, he was fantastic. <laughs> he was. Uh, Sam Bass was with us in the summer, I guess, spring to fall of 1975, and he was managing a mass team in Florida called the Mass Superstars which mm -hmm. were Jerry Lawler and Don Green. Okay. And uh, Sam Bass was just uh, another guy. What made Sam Bass great was understanding how to get people to hate him. And that's, you know, the psychology of wrestling is everything, obviously, mm -hmm. it used to be. And uh, Sam Bass could walk to the ring and just people wanted to kill him at that stage. Fantastic manager. But there were. There were a lot of guys that, you know, a guy like Sam Bass – he died in 75 or 76. Right. Uh, a guy like uh, Saul Weingaroff, never on a big stage and out of doing smaller promotions by the 70s, you know, not mm -hmm. in the bigger promotions, but people will rave about his work. But there was a slew of guys going back in the early 70s and into the 60s that there's no footage. We have no context to know how great these were other than talking to ringsiders who were there and actually saw them. And, and that that's one of the great things. I think one of the great, and I, I we'll get back to because I know who you were going to discuss. But um, we'll get, th that's one of the great things to me about the internet. I'm so glad that we have it because you sometimes, as a wrestling fan, discovering something new that you never knew was there is one of the coolest things in the world. I'll give an example. Um, I started watching um, for probably probably the third or fourth time in my life, but. Um, I started watching Smoky Mountain Wrestling from beginning to end again. Sure. You know, um, it's it's one of the you know I can go back and watch it any time. But what it did is 
one night it got me, you know, Smoky Mountain Wrestling on the computer and a little bit of beer and you go down the wormhole. And I I watched hours of Ron Wright on YouTube. Yep. What a fucking heel. That guy, I and I I was unaware. Like all I ever knew of Ron Wright was he was the guy in Smoky Mountain when in the wheelchair with the blanket on his on his legs and et cetera, et cetera. And I go down this wormhole and discover this heel that's like, God, I wish this guy was around, you know, when I was <laughs> watching watching wrestling when I was a kid. What a great heel. But yeah, I mean, just going down a wormhole like that is a great thing for a fan, I think. And yeah. Discover and- things, people. Don't don't stay in your we don't stay in your lane. Discover things. Ron Wright's, you know, Ron Wright's best days were in the 70s. Oh, know? yeah, yeah. And uh, what he was doing with the chisel in, uh, in, you know, in the Knoxville territory. But he was another one that would, you know, he'd come out of arenas and his tires had been slashed and he'd mm-hmm. been shot at. And, and when know, you watch him, you just, know why. You can see why when you watch him because he's so convincing. And so it's like, God, this guy's an asshole. You know, it's just it's such, it's such a good heel. You were going to bring up Paul Jones, weren't you? Of course I was. <laughs> this is something, uh, you know, there, there are several things, there are several triggers that I have. Uh, I, and we can talk about one in a few minutes and, and I'll throw it out there now and then just remind me. But Mike Graham never drew a dime. Uh, so remind me of that one in a little bit because okay. I like that one as well. But Paul Jones, uh, and, and this is for people that saw Paul Jones as a manager in Crockett, I thought he was terrible. I did and too. I don't think, I don't think, I don't know how much of that was his fault. And I liked Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul and I were actually working on his autobiography for years. And I still have 20 chapters of it. So I, I never liked him as a manager. I never thought it worked. And that's how people know. And people, oh, Paul Jones sucked. And at that point, I want to grab somebody by the throat and say, you saw Paul Jones as, as essentially a lame duck manager. He was mm-hmm. grand. Dusty hated Paul Jones. Paul Jones hated Dusty even more. But Paul was kept around Crockett because he had been part of Crockett for years, mm-hmm. for decades. And this was out of loyalty. Uh, Paul Jones as a wrestler was as believable as anyone who has ever stepped into the ring. And I saw Paul Jones in the in uh, 72 through 74. Paul mm-hmm. Jones had a baby face and heel run in the state of Florida, started off as a heel and became a baby face. And it lasted two and a half years. And it was kind of that bridging the gap between Jack Briscoe and Dusty Rhodes. Okay. You look at the three greatest heel, three greatest baby faces in the state of Florida. It's Eddie Graham, Eddie Graham you know, essentially is cuts down on his hours and it goes to Jack Briscoe and -hmm. Jack Briscoe now becomes the big baby face. Jack Briscoe becomes the world champion. Dusty Rhodes takes over and does that. Uh, And then you can argue in the eighties, Barry Windham, whoever it was, but the point was it really went from Eddie Graham to Jack Briscoe to Dusty Rhodes. Paul Jones was the top baby face in the state after Jack Briscoe and before Dusty. Okay. And uh, literally by the time that Dusty was turning babyface, Paul was already out of the state. Mm-hmm. Paul Jones in the early 70s, especially I'll say 72 going into 73, was in kind of this feud. It was a triad of three guys, and it was Paul Jones, Buddy Colt, and Jack Briscoe. 
And on one any given night, it was Paul Jones versus Buddy Colt. The next night, it's Paul Jones versus Jack Briscoe. And the third night, Buddy Colt versus Jack Briscoe. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it was almost they were interchangeable. Those series of matches will probably remain my favorite program from a believability standpoint because hey, Jack Briscoe was the real deal. Right. There's no, you yeah. know, there you could watch a Jack Briscoe match from and Jack retired in 85. You could watch a Jack Briscoe match and you're still gonna say this guy's legit. Right. He yeah. Was. Yeah. And it, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That, that'll it, never tra- fade. Right. Transcends time. Transcends Absolutely. time. But yes. Colt was uh he's a cult favorite, but he called whose career ended in 75 with the plane crash. Mm-hmm. Buddy Colt was a legit, he gave the impression of a legit badass. And he could do almost anything in the ring. Throw in Paul Jones, who was another one, one of the best punches, not afraid to brawl, not afraid to wrestle. These matches were incredible. Paul Jones had every tool to be the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, with the exception of the fact he was a little short. Mm-hmm. Uh, five eight, five nine, somewhere right around there. So he didn't have height. I hate to use another cliche, but if he had been six six one, I think there would have he would have been in contention to be a world's heavyweight champion. He was that good. Uh, so don't don't let a, uh, a you know the fedora wearing Paul Jones, whatever right. that hat was, and the the you know the the sparkly outfits that Porter Wagoner used to wear on. <laughs> Don't let any of that shit fool you. This guy was the real deal in the seventies. Well, and that's that's again, that's another one of those things. I'm glad that's why I'm so glad to have you here because that's why I wanted to dig into this. Because again, that's the Paul Jones that I saw. I've seen a little bit of before he be like the tail end of his his career in Mid Atlantic before he became a manager. Sure, um, but that's it. I haven't seen a lot of Paul Jones from the seventies. You know, so now here I go tonight. Maybe that's what I'll dig into. Maybe I'll go check that out. That I, I don't want to even take away, even mm-hmm. if Mid Atlantic was good. But uh, so we're, we're getting a special guest right now. <laughs> there he is, Oz. You say hi. You say hi, Oz. So he doesn't want to join it. me. <laughs> it's always nice to have company. Have somebody for support. You know. Uh, this is it. It's my soulmate, um, as I as I tell everyone. This is my soulmate <laughs> right here. So, um, the the okay. Well, hold on. Let me ask you a question. Or let me make a statement, Barry. Mike Graham never drew a dime. <laughs> so this is one that generally sets me off mm-hmm. big time. And the people who say Mike Graham never drew a dime, and I, I really want to quantify this and look at all sides of it, because workers have said it. Mm-hmm. The people that say it have no fucking idea what they're talking about because they weren't there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I think a lot of this, a lot of this, I'm going to put on the shoulders of uh, big clumsy Kevin Nash. Uh, he, I believe, came out and called Mike a vanilla midget and said Mike Graham never drew a dime. Uh, and let's say in WCW, they'd be absolutely correct. Nobody was watching WCW to watch Mike Graham. I was a guy that was in the arenas. Mm -hmm. I spent the majority of my childhood beginning in 1971 
up into the 80s, uh, again, one to three times per week. One time I saw five cards in one week. Wow. We did a tour of the state. Mike Graham do a lot of fucking dimes. He drew mm -hmm. a lot of fucking money. And it, it, there are parrots on social media that say Mike Graham was a vanilla midget. Again, parroting what Big Clumsy, uh, Big Doofus had said. <laughs> and Or Mike Graham never drew a dime, which he also said, and I believe Missy Hyatt said. Though Missy said it more as a joke. Mm -hmm. Mike Graham drew a lot of dimes. You might not like Mike Graham. You might have uh, a, an issue with the way, because I know he had an issue with uh, guys like Dean Malenko and uh, Chris Benoit. And, you know, there was a lot of issues. I get it. You don't like the guy. I have zero issue with that. You don't have to like him. But if you're going to say he never drew a dime when Mike put a lot of asses into seats, that is so contextually incorrect mm -hmm. that I call people out for it all the time. Show me your proof he never do a dime because I was fucking there and I right. saw it. Well, and not to mention the person making the statement was the lowest drawing WWF champion in history. So, I mean, let's be honest, Mr. Nash, <laughs> you know, you, you weren't exactly putting the asses in the seats either. And, and I don't know. Yeah. It was, it's a stupid statement to make, especially yeah. so again, let like me give Kevin Nash credit too. There are, and this is something I have to give him a lot of credit for. This guy made millions of dollars in professional wrestling with the most marginal talent that I mm -hmm. may have ever seen. And he's not a, not a good worker. No, a no. Slum, sloppy, clumsy. Uh, if he's not injuring himself, he's injuring somebody else. But politically, this is one of the brightest guys <laughs> I right. think ever to work in wrestling and a guy with really super marginal talent made not only a career, but millions of dollars mm -hmm. that takes something. And that's where I'll give him credit for. Right. Um, the, but what I will say is I still stand by the fact he made a lot of money. He made a lot of money as part of a group with Hulk Hogan and Scott Hall around him. And I'm not discounting his charisma or anything, but if I if I take Kevin Nash, again, he's solely the guy that is carrying the company on his back. Because if anybody, I, I WWF stuff, I'll go on about it forever. Like I know it by heart. His top time to be on his own as the top guy in a company, the top guy in a company, he drew for shit. He was the worst drawing champion Vince ever had. And... He drew with the NWO as part of the NWO. He didn't draw as Kevin Nash. He right. drew as so. I mean, I know you were giving him a little credit there, but I have to take a little bit of the credit back because anytime he's the top, he was the top guy on his own. He didn't draw. It, no, he, but it's he, not, the only credit I'm giving him is that he was bright enough to, to put himself in that position. To put yeah. himself in a position where a guy who fucking tears his quad to stepping over the ropes. Has became a multimillionaire. Yeah. Like that to me, that's where that that's a big thing. Like mm -hmm. this guy really, what a bright guy. At the same time, I don't think Kevin Nash was a wrestling fan prior to getting into wrestling. No. Not at all. He did it because he saw an end to a means of making a lot of money. And mm -hmm. again, very successful. To say Mike Graham never drew a dime is so incorrect. I can I can show you stats. I mean, I would love I would love nothing more. And I know 
you know, this will never happen. I would love to have some sort of forum where I could debate somebody like Kevin Nash, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on something like this. People on Facebook will post all the time and I'll see it and it will be, oh, Mike Graham never drew a dime. Show me your source. Show me your source. Kevin Nash said it in an interview with uh, someone, you know. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin Nash said it in an interview in some hotel room in, in yeah, exactly. Tampa. Being yeah. paid by like Rob Feinstein for a <laughs> yes. fucking, uh, shoot, shoot thing in a hotel room. Exactly. And shoot interviews, they crack me up. They crack me up because people take them to heart and they don't realize you, it, you're talking to a professional wrestler. They're not talking anymore. Yes. It, it's all work. It's everything's a work. And, you know, like, I don't believe a story until I see, like, four different people tell the same story the same way. Other than that, they're working the shoot guy, getting their money. And that's fine. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I wanted to ask you before we um, wrap it up was a guy that I wanted to ask about in Florida because he's one of my favorite heels of all time. I, I almost – no one as a heel to me personally can compare to Don Morocco as a heel. Sure. Um, I, I, if, if Don Morocco, if I see something that has Don Morocco on it as a bad guy, I'm watching it. Cause the guy was fantastic. What was it? What was, when did he work in Florida? And, and, and what was uh, just, what was it like to see him in Florida? I guess is my question. Don Morocco was the fucking man. So I, I wasn't a huge fan of what he was doing up north mm -hmm. because at that point he was uh, he was bigger. He was slower, uh, you know, and they were kind of playing off that, you know, with the meatball sandwich and all that right. you know, in, in the match. But we saw Don Morocco for the first time in 1974 and he came in as a baby face and he was working primarily mid card, getting some main events. But uh, he was brought in and there was a comparison to Jack Briscoe. OK. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of people were of the impression that, oh, they they're similar in stature, uh, the same hairstyle. Obviously, Don looks Hawaiian. Jack did it. Right. But uh, there was a big comparison. And then there was a match that took place probably within three or four months of Don being in the state where he filled in for someone. And it escapes me who he filled in for. And he wrestled Jack Briscoe and almost beat Jack Briscoe for the NWA World's Heavyweight title. Hmm. And it was kind of like this This is what made Don Morocco in the state of Florida. Before mm -hmm. that, he had might have been in tag matches or doing other stuff, but almost beating Jack Briscoe, uh, and he reversed the figure four, was a big deal. A, yeah, I mean, this deal. was a big deal. His career was made. He came back in 77. In 77 was such a great run for him because he came back as this tough, kick-ass baby face. And he was, Don Morocco was tough. There mm -hmm. was, here was a guy that would go out, he would bleed, he would sweat, spit coming out of his mouth. He didn't give a shit. <laughs> he was out there to kick some ass and that's what we saw. It mm -hmm. conveyed to the crowd, to the public. So Don Morocco to me, legit absolutely yes. a legit guy uh, and had some great feuds. Ivan Koloff, Killer Carl Cox, Lars Anderson had these great feuds. Then he disappeared and we didn't see Don Morocco, but mysteriously in 1979, a guy showed up called the Magnificent M wearing a mask and uh, was only around for like two weeks and the mask came off on television 
uh, Steve Kern took off the mask. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it was a bald Don Morocco. <laughs> and at that point, Don went on uh, what is a legendary heel run mm -hmm. uh, in the state of Florida that lasted and uh, just, I mean, at a different level. Anything Don Morocco did in the state of Florida was Hall of Fame worthy. No exceptions to it. He was money every single night. Awesome. Uh, you know, it's funny because um, I – I do the other show with um, Chad Austin from ECW and Aaron oh, yeah. re reliving the extreme where we're going through ECW from the humble beginnings um, till the very end of extreme. And it's funny because Don Morocco comes in, you know, he's in there at the beginning and I mean, he's, he's fat, he's slow. He's, you know, obviously he's just there to get his, his indie paycheck and go. He doesn't give a shit, but man, I contest to those guys every time we see him, Still the promos there, you know, even, even when he doesn't give a shit in the ring, I can still sit and watch that promo because I love a Don Morocco promo. Um, what a heel, what a heel. Just, I, I get yeah. I'm excited when I talk about Don Morocco. As but a heel. <laughs> to, even to that end, as I look at that, you know, if Don and Don, Don's never going to wrestle another match, but mm -hmm. if Don showed up at an indie show to wrestle a match, I know what that would be. That would be maybe Don throwing a punch. I would still go to the fucking show. Yeah. Just to see Don <laughs> Exactly. Understanding the limitations, I would still want to see him. In his heyday, though, you you know, and if you can find that on YouTube in, the, in Florida, uh, it, there are some Don Morocco matches. Uh, they're phenomenal. The, he was, Don had it. He had it all. There, was, there wasn't anything that Don Morocco couldn't do. Nothing. I say, I, I say, and I've I've had this conversation with others, that, you know, on the show and stuff. I say he's one of those guys where they always say, "Give me a guy that should have been a world champion," and he's always on my list. He's always on my list. I, yeah. I think that I think even if even if for a brief time as as an NWA heel champion, I think Don Morocco could have pulled that off. Aces. The problem with the NWA, I, I think, I think the WWF was more conducive. I would mm -hmm. have had him as maybe, you know, why the Iron Sheik? Why not Don Morocco? Right. Yeah. You know, like what's yeah. the, I don't, I don't understand the thought process, but you know, give him the belt, have him do it for a month, whatever it mm -hmm. is. The NWA was very, uh, the old boy network. And I, I have to, you know, he, he's Hawaiian. I'd have to think that's the only reason they <laughs> as stupid as that sounds yeah. right now. Mm -hmm. That Hawaii has been a state for years, right. <laughs> uh, but for whatever reason, it, the NWA was such an old boy network that I don't think they were going to put the uh, world title on a Hawaiian is the only excuse that I can think of. Because again, <laughs> Don Morocco was it. He was it. My last question for you, sir, about Florida. What was... What was the what do, would you say was the hottest angle you ever got to witness in that territory? Absolutely. And this is great. I'm glad you asked that because this is going to lead into a plug for my fan fest as well. Uh, so I I was really fortunate in that I saw a lot of great angles. Mm -hmm. There were some that were mind-blowingly great that were cut off at the knees and not understanding at the time why they might, you know, why, why aren't these guys working with each, whatever it might be. There was an angle in 1976 
that was revolutionary, uh, I think, in professional wrestling. And it, uh, it drew, and I'll, I'll go through the steps. So Bob Roop and Steve Kern. Mm -hmm. Steve Kern had not yet exploded as a big star. He was part of a tag team with uh, a future WWF world champion in Backlund. They were the Florida tag team champions. And Steve Kern was essentially a middle card guy or in a tag team. He wasn't working main events. Right. And uh, Bob Roop at that point had been the Florida champion. He had been a top guy in Florida for about a year and a half, maybe two years. About a year and a half, I take it back. And he was transitioning from a solo main event heel to part of a faction with Bob Orton Sr. and Bob Orton Jr. Okay. And they were talking, Steve Kern was talking about his dad. And Steve Kern's dad, a little backstory, was a prisoner of war and uh, had just come back to the States two or three years earlier. I want to say it was 72 or 73 he came back. Mm -hmm. But he had been a prisoner of war for many years. There's books out there about this. And if you Google... Colonel Richard Kern, you can get the backstory. So Gordon and Steve are talking about how his dad is a hero. He's a war hero. And Bob Root comes out, he's the next interview, and says, I don't understand this. He goes, he's not a hero. Anybody that's been captured twice and been a prisoner of war is a coward. <laughs> now, You've got to realize, A, this is 1976, so there's no mm -hmm. internet. Uh, you know, if you want to research Colonel Richard Kern, you're going to have to find a library that's got some information. So the world was a lot smaller because of not having the internet. Mm -hmm. So saying something so inflammatory like that is not just going to get, you know, Colonel Richard Kern's family upset. It's going to get fans upset. Got to realize, too, that we also have an Air Force base in Tampa. It's a military town. Mm -hmm. So Bob says this. The next thing you know, Steve Kern comes flying out, jumps over the desk, and attacks Ruth. It's on fire. When Steve does that, his ankle hits the, the camera, the camera mount. Okay. So his ankle swells up. He can't walk, but he's beating the shit out of Ruth. Gordon Soli is doing what Gordon Soli does best. You know, we're going to break and he's frantic. He's freaking out. We've got to get order restored. Uh, and they come back. And the next thing you know, Kern's at the desk and he's, he's literally got tears in his eyes. Like he's, this is not an interview. Like mm -hmm. this is a guy that you've just fucking called his father, a prisoner of war twice a coward, he's livid. It's unbelievable. This, this transcends wrestling. Mm -hmm. And that was the key with it. This right. wasn't a normal wrestling angle. This transcended whatever they were trying to do. These two fought in every city in Florida in every type of match for the next five months. That's a long time to have yeah. a program. So in Miami, we saw their grudge match. Then we saw the return grudge match. Then we saw a uh, tag team match where maybe, you know, he's got Backlund and Roop's got Orton Jr. Mm -hmm. Then the next week is a Texas death match. 
Then it's a steel cage match. <laughs> it went on for five months, but it was, it drew. And the right. key with this was, you know, Eddie Graham was a genius, you know, love him or hate him. Faults, no faults, whatever it is, nobody will ever deny his wrestling acumen. It right. existed. So on a weekly basis, these guys are drawing without Dusty. These guys are drawing for these kinds of matches. And then they moved to smaller towns and they repeated the cycle in these tiny little towns that I, you know, you, nobody's ever even heard of. They went on for five months and it was just the most compelling, realistic angle you would, you would ever see. So we had a, a chance uh, and this was our third fan fest to, uh, to relive the angle so we headlined our third fan fest, fan fest with Steve Kern and Root. And we brought awesome. them together for the first time in years. And the genesis was, you know, we're going to talk about your careers. We're going to do a Q&A. Let's talk about this angle. And we, I actually got the audio. Can't find the video, but I actually got the audio to the angle. And we played it. And then mm -hmm. both guys could commentate on it. And I got to tell you, this was one of those moments as a wrestling fan that really meant a lot. And Bob Roop, if you've never met him, just one of the nicest, warmest human beings, wrestling, not wrestling life. This mm -hmm. guy was, this guy's it. I love Bob Roop till no end. I, he's a great friend of mine. I talk yeah. to him all the time. I just love him. He's just such a, a great person. Uh, Bob, if I asked Bob to come down for the next fan fest, Bob would say, Bob doesn't even ask me how much, what, mm -hmm. you know, there's not, when do you need me? And I'll be there. That's the relationship. Steve Kern said, I have a hard stop at seven 30 and I've got to be out of the building. So seven 28 comes along and I'm doing the moderating for this whole show. Right. And I'm like, Steve, I know you've got to go. I've got one more question and Steve goes, it's only 7.30. I can stick around for another hour. <laughs> and that was so great because he was so vested into this conversation with Roop and about this angle and what had occurred 45 years ago mm -hmm. that he, he didn't want to go anywhere. That's awesome. And that really <laughs> said a lot to me. Like that really meant, you know, a lot to me. So uh, again, long winded roundabout answer to your question. Bob Root versus Steve Kern. Uh, and I did an article. I wrote an article years ago for the old Kayfabe Memories website. Uh, and then I, I updated it. But uh, I was able to get quotes from Root Kern and Jody Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Jody Hamilton, the original assassin, was also the booker during this period when this okay. angle was taking place. He gives all the credit to Root and Kern. But at the same time, he was the guy in charge. And then I was able to list all of their matches that I was able to document, which is probably mm -hmm. 90 or 95 percent. And there's probably 100 matches between these two, which mm -hmm. is just incredible. Yeah. So that, that's where I would go. I would go Root Kern. But again, you know, there were so many great programs and great angles that occurred on a monthly basis, mm -hmm. sometimes on a weekly basis that it, it could be difficult to, to choose. Well, that is definitely uh, definitely true. And I think we've just scratched the scratched the surface of this iceberg that we could probably go on 
um, and talk more. So I would, I, I, first of all, I want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate well, it. I'm here for the cheeseburgers. Let's, let's yeah. Oh yes. Out. And, and thank you for, and thank you for, for not asking for the really, really expensive gourmet cheeseburgers. I appreciate that <laughs> right. too. Um, but also I would love to have you back on sometime to dig into more of this, Barry. And is there anything you would like to shamelessly plug before we, I, I'm, I'm a shameless plugger myself. So is there anything oh, you'd like to plug before yeah. we, yeah. uh, so, good. This will take about 30 minutes and I'll start to knock all this. <laughs> uh, but anytime you want me back, it's, you know, every time I, I do an interview or I talk to people about CWF, it's almost like, okay, you've talked for four hours. We got to go now. And it's like, I could talk all night long. It's, I love it. It's just, it's my passion. It's my hobby. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would be more than happy to come back, but yes, let me do a little plugging. So the breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry podcast, we don't just discuss wrestling. We, uh, we discuss everything underneath the sun. We discuss life. Uh, If you like movies, music, television, uh, food is a huge topic. We do get wrestling in all the time. We have a guest on this past week, Lily Hayden. Lily was the youngest daughter in the Rodney Dangerfield movie, Easy Money. And she is now a concert violinist. Uh, she is tremendous. She was a great guest. But we've had on Butch Reed, Dory Funk Jr., Stan Hansen, uh, Jerry Briscoe, Steve Kern, Bob Roof, Ron Fuller. We've had on maybe 100 wrestling guests but we've also had on punk rock musicians. We've had on actors, actresses. So we're very diverse. We're not a family-friendly podcast. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, profanities and other things that are tossed out. But we're also we're very inclusive. So uh, I have a lot of fun, and I think I think we just knocked out. It's 184, 185 episodes. Never missed a week. We did do an epic. And I mean fucking epic three-part interview with Jimmy Garvin that uh, is, you know, and it's not us. I feel a robot can do interviews sometimes, but <laughs> it, it's the guest. And mm-hmm. fucking Jimmy Garvin was just on fire. He's fantastic. But we drop every Tuesday about roughly 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Episodes go anywhere between one and two hours. Uh, please join us. We also have a Facebook group. It's the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry Facebook group. And lastly, uh, if you are interested in CWF, we have a Facebook page. It is the Championship Wrestling from Florida Archives Facebook page. We have been documenting the history of wrestling in the state uh, very deeply for the last eight years. Uh, You will learn a lot. And then my last will be the Fan Fest. So Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, the pandemic and COVID-19 has put a lot of these things on hold uh, with vaccines, uh, as long as it's not the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you're Moderna or Pfizer uh, and you've taken the vaccine, uh, travel is in the cards for this year for a lot of people. We are tentatively looking at doing a fan fest in November. And I would think that as we enter into the fall and into the winter, uh, that between testing, vaccines, awareness, that our company, our country, as we're seeing, is already opening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And really, it's, you know, I'm somebody who's in the restaurant industry, and I can tell you the months of January and February versus the month of March, 
it's like a whole different world. So right. April will be great. We'll continue to grow. Keep your fingers crossed that we can run again in November. We have a great time. Our, our fan fest is unlike any other fan fest you've ever been to. And just so I can quantify that, because I realize promoters toss out bullshit 24 <laughs> seven. Uh, it's the nature of the beast. Ours is not a family. It's not a, a fan fest. It's, it's generally considered more of a family get together. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is, we limit to 200 tickets. So you're not standing in line trying to get an autograph for an hour. And then it's a 30 second meet and greet. We encourage all of our people to have meaningful conversations with our guests. And they do, they walk out and they were like, that's the greatest. I just talked for 25 minutes uh, with Barry Windham, you know, something that's, I heard something I heard at our last event. We give you the opportunity you can get your photo, you can get your autograph, but if you actually want to have a conversation, a meaningful, not a bullshit conversation, ours is the place to be at. So fingers crossed, Nate, we can do it in November. Sounds great. And I will say, just to, 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 to testify a little bit here, I am a member of the Archives Facebook group, and um, I love, I, I love, again, looking at history and everything and, and your pick of cards that you put up. I love to just go back and look at those. It's just awesome to look at those cards and yeah. see who, you know, I'm and, putting you on the spot right now, Nate, because I don't recall ever seeing your name commenting on one of those <laughs> pick of card threads. I am going in tonight and I am specifically going to tag you and look and you will. But, and what Nate's talking about is we do on a daily basis at 8 PM every night in the Facebook group, we do a pick a card thread and what it lists is every card that would have taken place on that date. So as we're recording this, which is April 15th, we'll have every card that I can find mm -hmm. for April 15th, going back sometimes to the thirties up until the eighties. I think the most we've ever had is 45 cards on one night, but we always average somewhere in the thirties. And it's great for me too, because I even learn stuff in, right. in putting these up. And Pete Letterberg's pictures too. I love, you know, the best. Yeah. Um, but yes, everybody join Barry on social media. Definitely check out if, uh, and I've, I've kind of beat it to death. You probably don't know, but uh, I've been giving you free advertisement. I, I talk about you guys on our show quite a bit, but um, breaking kayfabe with Bowdern and Barry, check it out. You will love it. And that being said, Barry, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. And again, I'd love to have you back sometime soon. Maybe next time we can bring my brother, that rascal, in and uh, see what, what happens there. Well, there you have it. My interview with Mr. Barry Rose of uh, the CWF Legends Fan Fest. And I learned a lot. Like I said, during the interview, Florida is one of the territories. I mean, I've dug way into Deep South. I've I've dug into... Uh, well, I mean, I've always been, I've always dug as much as I could into Memphis because I love Memphis. But Florida is one of those territories that I... I see, you know, I read things about, and, and I get a lot of information about it in Barry's Facebook group, but first-hand knowledge and all that, it's very, very interesting to talk to somebody that was there and that really, really knows the history of that territory. And that was, like I said during the interview, just the tip of the iceberg, I think, of what we can talk about. Looking forward at some point to have Barry back on the show again, and I want to thank him very much for joining me and sitting down with me and having the interview this week. Thank you, Barry, for being on the show all right, everybody, I'm going to wrap it up here for episode 131 of the We Can't Wrestle podcast. 
Please do, if you're not already, join our Facebook group, the We Can't Wrestle Podcast Facebook group. Lots of great conversation there. Also, check out Reliving the Extreme if you're not listening, where myself, my brother Aaron, and Chad Austin from ECW are watching ECW week to week from beginning to end, reviewing the episodes. Some of them are some doozies, as we like to call them. And uh, things are evolving with ECW now. We've gotten to the point where Sabu and Taz are in the promotion, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's been a fun journey there. But again, I want to thank everybody for joining me here this week on the We Can't Wrestle podcast. Make sure to check out WrestleNet Radio. More new original programming coming in the weeks and months to come. Check that out. It's going to be big. We are very excited about it here at the We Can't Wrestle family. And we will see you next week with the next edition of the We Can't Wrestle podcast. Thanks for joining me, everybody.